0: This week, excitement in the physics community with new evidence on what happened at the birth of the universe.
1: It's almost like physicists are children on on Christmas morning and they've had this this unexpected gift from Santa.
2: And scientists go to acting class.
3: What's she saying? You know, it's very hard for me to read the directions without my glasses.
2: <laughs> we find out what place this type of talk has in science. Plus how mum's vitamin A deficiency affects babies' immunity. And sophisticated deep brain stimulation that listens as well as talks to the brain. This is The Nature Podcast for March the 20th, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith.
0: We're hitting you straight in the face with the news chat this week, as we just couldn't wait to give you the lowdown on our top story. One of Nature's news editors and chief physics geek, Davide Castelvecchi, is here with what some have been referring to as the story of the week.
1: Well, some physicists actually might say it's the story of the decade. It is the discovery of a long-awaited signature in the sky that tells us information all the way back to the Big Bang. And it was the first time astronomers were able to peer all the way back to the Big Bang because normally telescopes cannot see beyond a certain distance back in in the past of the universe. And the only way that we have to uh, get information directly from the Big Bang is to look at this new kind of signal called a gravitational wave.
0: Now, we'll come to what they are in just a second. Um, There's quite a long history to people thinking about what might have happened at the very, very earliest time um, of the Big Bang, the very beginning of the universe.
1: Basically, the standard picture that cosmologists have assumed about the Big Bang for the last several decades is that it began with a very brief and very rapid period of exponential expansion, which then almost immediately settled down to a more a relatively more leisurely pace of expansion there has been a lot of circumstantial evidence for this idea which is called cosmic inflation but for a long time cosmologists were hoping to get some definitive so-called smoking gun and they uh, for for years they've been talking about these gravitational waves as the thing that would basically be the last nail in the coffin
0: so what's their role in this, then, gravitational waves?
1: So the gravitational waves are released, they're unleashed by this extremely brief period of inflation. But then they resonate throughout the universe forever. They're basically still around us. Now, the problem is they would still, well, at the time, uh, at, the, at, the, at present, they would be probably too feeble to detect, So astronomers have done the next best thing. They've looked for the imprint of gravitational waves on the early universe uh, and and specifically at a time around 380,000 years after the Big Bang. So they've seen these ripples still propagating across the universe at that time by using a radio telescope.
0: And help me get my head around... Exactly what it is that they found then. So it's, as you say, it's like ripples in, I suppose, almost the fabric of, of space.
1: Gravitational waves, yes, they are, they propagate in the fabric of space. They, they curve space as they go. They move at the speed of light and they can um, propagate in, the, in empty space, in the vacuum. But at that time, when the universe was 380,000 years old, it was filled with a plasma of elementary particles and atomic nuclei. And the way that the waves propagated in this plasma affected the, the light that we now see coming from that plasma. And in particular, they left a very specific signature in what's called the polarization of the of the radiation from that plasma, so we don't see the, the gravitational waves directly. We see uh, essentially light waves that were affected by the passage of the gravitational waves.
0: And there's a nice little uh, history of science vignette, isn't there, about one of the first physicists to talk about this theory of inflation.
1: Yes, it was uh, it was uh, Alan Guth who is now at MIT. And in nineteen at the end of 1979, he was a struggling postdoc at Stanford University and actually at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. And he had this late night realization that something like inflation, essentially this exponential period of expansion would solve a number of problems that people had pointed out about the Big Bang Theory and the current state of the universe. And in one fell swoop, This idea of inflation would basically make everything come together, except that there was no evidence for it at the time. The first time that he annotated the equations, he wrote the words spectacular realization and marked a box around those words, and that notebook is still preserved in a museum.
0: And for a mild-mannered uh, physicist, that was quite some spectacle, I suppose. Now, do physicists today think of this new evidence as a sort of spectacular realization in itself?
1: Yes, it has been uh, quite exciting to see the reactions. It's almost like physicists are children on on Christmas morning and they've had this this unexpected gift from Santa. I mean, there have been a few people who have been cautious, but most of the people that our reporter Ron Cohen interviewed said that this is you know, one of the most important discoveries in the history of science.
0: And how has it felt for you coordinating nature's special issue on this? Because as you've mentioned to me before, it's been 10 years now since you wrote your first feature about uh, gravitational waves and inflation.
1: Oh gosh, uh, it has been really exciting. It's It's still, you know, the dust hasn't settled. In fact, we are still trying to provide ongoing coverage. And the, the ink had not dried yet on the, on the announcement that was made yesterday, when on the same day, uh, some cosmologists have posted the first theory paper detailing some of the consequences of this discovery. In particular, they claim that one of the leading models for dark matter now is in serious trouble. And that person was Pedro Ferreira, who we have interviewed on this podcast not long ago. Over the next few days, there will certainly be a flurry of other papers uh, because theorists are basically going crazy with this result.
0: Yeah, so plenty of nocturnal uh, scribbling of equations in the margins, I'm sure, is going on.
1: And hopefully more spectacular realizations.
0: You can find the new special that Davide has been coordinating all about the new results, plus a video
2: made by our very own Noah Baker, online at nature.com news. Coming up in the research highlights, wandering badgers and engineered power leaves. But first, you are what you eat. It's also becoming clear that you are what your mother ate when she was pregnant with you. We already have hints that mum's diet could affect baby's risk of obesity or brain function. The latest piece of evidence comes from a European team studying the immune systems of mice. They were looking at the effect of a mother mouse's vitamin A intake on how well her babies battle infection throughout their lives. Infection defences are controlled by a set of lymphoid organs, which contain cells that detect and respond to bacteria and viruses. And as Rainer Meebius explained to Nature's Marion Turner, diets can have a dramatic effect on these organs and their work, an effect the team weren't expecting.
4: While well, we always thought that lymphoid organ development was controlled by what, what kind of genes you have, so pre-programmed more or less, what we show here for the first time is that it actually dietary components that already prenatally, so in, in, in utero, can determine uh, the developing lymphoid organs. We go uh, in, in detail how just only uh, varying one component of the diet, vitamin A, how that actually affects the developing immune system in the fetus, and that actually has a lifelong consequence for the offspring.
5: In this study, I think you studied pregnant mice and then studied the development of the immune system of the mouse babies?
4: That's correct. So what we see is when we vary the levels of vitamin A during pregnancy, we actually notice that the secondary lymphoid organs of the offspring are actually uh, depending on the levels that that you eat. So if you have... Lots of vitamin A your secondary lymphoid organs become larger. The secondary lymphoid organs are the places where the cells that actually have to respond to uh, pathogens, like bacteria and viruses, where they for the first time uh, come in contact with that part of the pathogen that they can respond to, and then they actually help to fight the pathogen. So uh, the more of those cells you can actually activate, the, the bigger your response is and the faster you get rid of the pathogen.
5: And so literally, if you have a smaller lymphoid organ, then you have fewer of those cells that are able to then fight infection.
4: Yes, what we saw was if you have, if your uh, lymphoid organs are smaller, you actually have less of these lymphocytes and therefore less of the ones that are specific for that pathogen. You see less division, so you have fewer Uh, or it takes longer to get enough cells to fight the pathogen.
5: This was done in mice. Do we know anything about the effect of vitamin A on the immune system in humans?
4: We don't have the data for the developing immune system in embryos, but what we do know is that vitamin A is very important for the immune system that's associated with the gut. So in the gut, you convert a lot of vitamin A, and that actually determines how the immune system in, uh, in the gut works. And if you take it away, like what happens in the third world countries where the diet sometimes doesn't have enough vitamin A, then you, you do get an immune system in the gut that doesn't work so well and you end up having diarrhea and all kinds of problems there.
5: Where do we get vitamin A from and how common is vitamin A deficiency?
4: We we get it from green leaf uh, vegetables, uh, carrots, but also in meat. So the the more rich diets, what we have as a Western diet, that has plenty of vitamin A, but in um, the third world countries where you, they don't have those rich diets, there's actually really a shortage on it. And the World Health Organization actually uh, has a very effective program to provide. Kids there with vitamin A which you store in your liver and then they have enough for for a while again.
5: But now your research is indicating that it might be good to supplement vitamin A in pregnant women as well.
4: Well, that that has a risk because if you give too much, it actually, vitamin A is actually very important for body access formation, so your left, right uh, orientation and so you cannot have too much and you cannot have too little. So There are situations where uh, women might not be so well fed because they throw up all the time and maybe then it does become important when they are nauseous because of the pregnancy. So I think you can think of scenarios where it actually um, does become important uh, to actually pay attention to it. Sure. So
5: not necessarily um, every pregnant woman should take vitamin A as an additional supplement, but in in cases of malnutrition or in in cases of of nausea or something like
4: that. Yeah, but if you, if you have a healthy, normal healthy diet, then I think you will uh, eat enough vitamin A.
0: That was Rainer Mebius, who's based at the VU University Medical Centre in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, talking to Marian Turner. Now it's time
2: for the research highlights read by Noah Baker.
3: Putting carbon nanotubes into leaves can boost their photosynthetic power. Photosynthesis happens inside chloroplasts in the leaves, making chloroplasts the ultimate source of chemical energy in food and carbon-based fuels. Engineering them can help us harness the sun's energy better. Researchers in the US put carbon nanotubes in the leaves of Arabidopsis plants and inside chloroplasts in a dish. The semiconducting nanotubes integrated themselves into the chloroplast's outer wall. They tripled photosynthetic activity in the chloroplasts by boosting their transport of electrons. Carbon nanotubes could also allow plants to detect pollutants and pesticides. Read more in Nature Materials. European badgers are wandering further than previously thought. Their travel schedules could affect the way they're culled or vaccinated to stop the spread of bovine tuberculosis. Badgers carry bacteria that cause TB in cattle. It's been a particular problem in the UK and Ireland, so researchers tracked nearly a 1,000 badgers as they roamed across county Kilkenny in Ireland. They found roughly half of the badgers had stayed in the same territory during the four year period. But some ventured a long way, over seven kilometers. One eager badger traveled over 22 kilometers. The team recommended extending TB confinement zones by at least seven and a half kilometers to act as a buffer. Find that study in the Journal of Animal Ecology.
2: we'll be finding out why scientists are going to acting class, but before that a new type of brain implant that could help patients get better and provide scientists with crucial data.
0: Frank Donabelian's body won't do what he wants it to do. At Stanford University in California, neurologist Camilla Kilbane is monitoring his symptoms tremors in his limbs.
6: Alright, so now start working on the tremor. Okay. So if you wouldn't mind, just let your arms and legs do what they want to do and just let the tremor come if it wants to. The right leg is good, the left leg.
0: Right there, that's the sound of a tremor.
4: Are you feeling that ting- tingling again?
6: So the right leg, we got that one to stop, so let's get the left to stop.
0: Donobedian has Parkinson's disease, which affects a deep-seated part of the brain, controlling, among other things, movement. Tremor is a hallmark of the disease. Parkinson's can be treated with drugs, but in cases like Donobedian's, if they don't work, surgeons can implant electrodes into the afflicted brain region, which deliver pulses of electricity. Somehow, it's not clear exactly how. These pulses suppress abnormal brain activity. Kilbane is tuning Donabedian's device to deliver the most efficient train of pulses.
6: So what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to check the electrical properties, OK? So you may feel
0: some
5: change in the stimulation or tingling for a split second, OK?
0: But Donabedian's day at the clinic doesn't end there. He's had implanted a new type of stimulator and his next appointment will use the device to listen in on the brain rather than just firing pulses into it. Deep Brain Stimulation, or DBS, is pretty one-way, and rather blunt. It sends electrical impulses much bigger than the brain itself generates. It can be tuned a little, as Kilbane was doing, but it doesn't respond flexibly to brain activity. It's like getting a message across by shouting with your fingers in your ears, when it would be more effective to listen first, and then speak only when you needed to say something. Obedience device is one of the first next-generation DBS implants. It can listen as well as talk. And it's giving neuroscientists a way to research the underlying condition. Reporter Helen Chen is on the line. She made those recordings of Donobedian at the Stanford Clinic and she's written a feature about next-gen DBS for nature. Helen, first of all, how new are these devices? There
6: really are only a couple of devices in this class so far um, and they've just come out in like the past six or seven months or so. The particular technology that Frank Donabedian has was first implanted in a patient in Germany last August. In October, Donabedian became the first person to receive the advice in the United States. There's a slightly different implant which treats epilepsy, and that was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration just last November, and that's been implanted in a few hundred people.
0: So the main differences then between Generation 1 and Generation 2 deep brain stimulation implants, um, what what do people point to?
6: Uh, The main difference really is the ability to uh, record how the brain is responding at the same time as providing stimulation. And so in the new devices, uh, we have an opportunity to eavesdrop on how neural networks are responding to the stimulation, what's changing when patients are actually improving With stimulation and maybe what's happening when patients don't improve.
0: So is it likely then that they could make DBS treatment more effective? I'm I'm sure that's the idea behind having devised them.
6: It's possible that um, different stimulation frequencies for example might be best suited for different situations uh, such as if a patient is walking or standing or It could be that uh, different stimulation parameters are better for different diseases or for different individual patients. We just don't know that yet because we haven't had such direct access to brain activity. Animal models of many brain diseases are not very accurate representations of of the human condition and the brain scans that uh, we have that we can take from the outside of patients' heads are pretty limited in the level of detail they provide. So being able to do these recordings from patients' brains um, in real time and uh, over long periods of time should help researchers systematically test these ideas. And finally,
0: we've been talking about Parkinson's for the majority of this uh, interview, but could these next-generation devices help treat uh, conditions other than Parkinson's disease?
6: That's certainly the hope. Um, There's a lot of work that's still in the experimental phase, but deep brain stimulation is showing pretty promising results in depression, Tourette syndrome, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and scientists are interested in testing the technology for other conditions as well. That was
0: reporter Helen Shen. You also heard the voices of patient Frank Donobedian and Camilla Kilbane. Find Helen's feature at nature.com news. Finally this week, it's the science version of Whose Line Is It Anyway, as Thea finds out what scientists can gain from improv.
7: I drove to school for small group and learned about (laughs) lungs.
8: When she laughs, she's not laughing.
2: Standing opposite a partner and mirroring their every word might not seem like a very useful skill. But it's all about communication. And let's face it, some scientists need a little help. What could scientists learn then from people whose job it is to take to the stage? Q. Alan Alder, actor and patron of the Alan Alder Centre for Communicating Science. Alder helped open the centre in 2009 after fronting a television programme, Scientific American Frontiers. On it, he interviewed hundreds of scientists about their work, and he noticed that the best interviews were the most conversational ones.
8: I realised that there were ways to, to help people get habituated to that kind of encounter, where it's personal, jargon-free, in plain language, and yet completely accurate.
2: The centre is affiliated to Stony Brook University, helping them offer training in the art of communication to science graduates and postdocs. But what is it about scientists that can sometimes mean they need a helping hand? I spoke to Valerie Lance-Gethro, who spent a decade acting before joining the centre to coordinate its improv sessions.
7: Scientists are trained, and rightly so, to disengage from their research so that their emotions are not influencing their data and that's imperative in science but equally important is re-engaging when you're communicating about science
8: okay now the two people who are standing are talking in gibberish and you have to translate that for the rest of us
6: you know what time it is why are you late again Uh, blah 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 Unacceptable! Every time it's the same story with you. I'm so
4: sorry. Blah 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 blah.
7: Please forgive me. Blah, blah,
4: blah.
7: I won't mess up blah, again. Blah, blah. I love you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hmm. Talking gibberish. I thought the idea was not to sound like gibberish. I asked Alan what place this type of talk has in science.
8: One of the things that it does is that it enables you to communicate something specific without using words so that you come to understand that you have your whole body to work with, you have your tone of voice to work with, and you can communicate pretty specific ideas without using words, so that when, you, when you're when you on a platform communicating with an audience, they need to hear a human tone in your voice. They need to hear that communicative sound, so an exercise like gibberish helps you communicate with more than, than just a, the saying of words.
2: Improv courses at Stony Brook run in short sessions over a few weeks and equate to one credit in a student's degree. Kimberly Bell, who's studying for a PhD in genetics, took the course in the autumn of 2011. Kim had been giving presentations on her course but was terrified of public speaking. But after a bit of improv...
5: When I'm giving presentations, I definitely pay more attention to the audience. The way I word my science, I used to try to pretend when I'm talking that there was no audience because I really just wanted to be in the room by myself talking. I was terrified, but now I realize it's really important to know that there's an audience there to tailor my speaking, my vocabulary, the way I'm talking about my work to them, look at them when I'm talking and gauge their response, see if they're bored or excited and what I could do to really bring them in.
2: But don't worry, Brad Pitt, the centre isn't trying to churn out the next batch of Hollywood stars. We're not trying
8: to turn scientists into actors, and it's not, it's not intended to help you become something you're not. On the contrary, the improvising that we teach enables you to be more authentically you when you're in front of a crowd. And there's something very attractive about that and very appealing to an audience to see a real fellow human up there telling you about their work.
2: Still sceptical, Valerie was too when she first started teaching scientists improv.
7: I went in feeling like this was never going to work. I mean, I I just could not imagine how this was going to happen. And the delight for me has been in watching how available scientists are to this idea, how playful they become quickly, and how the skepticism drops. So I think once they've signed on for the notion of, yeah, I should probably do something about this, then there's a great deal of positive energy that follows.
8: Pass a sound around that sounds like a word, sounds a little like some other language.
3: (laughs) Kyunchung. (laughs) Hum Hum
6: Boo
2: Thanks to Alan Alder and Valerie Lance Geffro of the Alan Alder Centre for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University in New York. You also heard from student Kimberly Bell. Thanks to Valerie and Graham Chedd for providing the improv clips. For more information about the Center, visit the website at www.centerforcommunicatingscience.org. Do you think improv could help your presenting skills? Or is there no place for acting in science? Let us know what you think on Twitter at Nature Podcast or email us at podcast at nature.com.
0: That's all from us this week. Remember to tune in next time when we'll be asking when, what and why is now. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham.